Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161CF154, P. Biddle on Congress, from the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 264, April 8, 1982. In this session, we're going to continue talking with Paul Biddle and Susan Alder, Otto Scott, and Douglas Murray and I are going to ask him questions about Congress. Because while we do not concern ourselves with candidates, nor do we promote uh, candidacies, Nevertheless, this year, there has been a deep-seated moral revulsion against Congress on a number of grounds. Some of it goes back to the Barney Frank case and other like things, then the post office and the house bank scandals, the Keating uh, scandal, and the general feeling is that we have an Aegean stable here that needs house cleaning. Now, Paul Biddle is a candidate for Congress, but our basic concern in this session is what are the problems in Congress as you see it, Paul? And what needs to be done there to make that body more accountable to the American public, to clean up the kind of thing that permits the uh, corruption at Stanford and where men like Barney Frank attempt to come to the defense of Stanford and other men as well so that we have a situation where corruption seems to have more friends than anything else. Well, I, I found congressmen to be as much or more than we could ever want them to be, and I've also found congressmen to be asleep at the wheel. I mean, we have all types there. Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the problems that I see now as a candidate is that in order to become a congressman, you need to buy. You need to buy airtime. You need to buy flyers. Well, all these things of buying associated with them connote money. And normally the sources of money for our congressional candidates comes from people who have access to these people once they're elected. If the people have access to their congressmen, then there is an offsetting counterbalance to special interest. But most congressional representatives, as time passes in their membership in the Congress, they become more and more supported by special interests. They become more and more approachable by lobbyists. If I ask you what is the telephone number of your congressman in his office in Washington, D.C., you might have to say 
Well, no, let me see. I know where I can find that in this directory. But I can promise you there are a number of lobbyists that if I would ask them, what is so-and-so's telephone number, they could tell you that telephone number just as I can tell you the telephone number of Congressman John Dingell. Why? Because I work with John Dingell all the time. Well, I have. I'm now our... Uh, do not do it so much, but during the time of the revelations on Stanford, there was frequent communication back and forth. The lobbyists have direct access, immediate access, continuing access, and they control dollars. And that tends to disenfranchise the rest of us from the process. That's one of the problems, I see. Secondly, the complexity of law within the Congress that we're enacting, because we've given a charter, a scope of action, a purview to the Congress that demands tremendous intellectual capability. You could be a true Mandarin and be staggered by the types of legislation coming down the tube. So who do you go back to for guidance on this, apart from the lobbyists? Well, you go to your political leadership and your political leadership oftentimes is in the same predicament that you as an individual congressman are in terms of wanting to remain a party in power, wanting to continue the flow of monies into your campaign funds, wanting to see particular personalities within your party who are jockeying one against another to come out on top. And again, the odd man out is the taxpayer. Now, those are fundamental problems that I think one particular swift blow of the sword to the Gordian knot can accomplish, and that is open up the system so people know how bad these people are or how good they are. Now, in matters of national security, well, we've, we've put a lot under that umbrella that doesn't deserve to be there, but I, I would support the fact that if it's a matter of national security, perhaps there's justification for not providing information like that to people who would take advantage of us. But there's most of our governmental activity that every citizen has the right to know about. And most citizens, if things are portrayed to them in a reasonable fashion, can make a reasonable solution, a reasonable choice. Uh, that is something that Congress does not do. So if we open up the process so people know what the Congress is doing, we know the riders that are coming through, the people who have set up special pork barrels here and there, hopefully we won't just say, oh, that's just the way Congress is, but we'll say those types of people have violated a trust and weakened the vitality and integrity of our government. They deserve to be pushed out the door. So the openness, the accountability, and here again is for myself, a group that's been very helpful to me had been the media. When I was going after Stanford, I can promise you I went to congressmen, and congressmen I spoke to were polite, but of little help until John Dingell involved himself. And he is quite a fellow. Uh, there are people that are very critical of John Dingell, and he and I are not of the same political party. But he's a very gutsy man, and he feels the same way that I do, that if the public sees how bad a situation is, and they can relate to it, you get change. 
Now, that's that's the biggest thing I want to see, a change in the Congress, the openness and the accountability. You think that uh, the checkoff on the income tax returns or public funding of uh, political campaigns should, is a solution? Get rid of the PACs? Well, okay, you, you engendered two questions there. First of all, do I think that the checkoff on the 1040 is a, is a viable way and an appropriate way to finance campaigns? No, I don't. I don't necessarily like that because I think any time you provide money to the government or bureaucracies, you're just asking for trouble. I'm, I prefer a situation where things are more immediate and direct. Uh, I don't... I don't think the government should be involved in, in the political process of electing our, our officials. Uh, there's too much of a chance for things to go astray. The the other question that you asked on that, now let me come back to it. Eliminate the political action committee money, which seems to be steering long-term public service people into this channel of corruption after... I, I think the concept for PACs was possibly occasioned by good intent. But there's tremendous abuse in PAC money now. Uh, I observe that to be the case. Other people would dispute that, I'm sure. But I, I think it is, because a congressman, in order to get the significant contributions of a PAC, uh, ends up selling his soul sometimes. And that denies you and I as individuals of our rights. Now, what I, what I see is more appropriate in the way of congressional funding is I don't think PACs should be allowed to contribute to primaries. And I think that in primaries, there should be not so much everyone drawing out of the same till, but in, in primaries, they have to be incubated a little bit. That's the chance for individuals. And remember, the thing that makes our government great is not that we have career politicians, but that the process is open to a number of people, a plumber, an electrician, a doctor, whoever wants to go out and become a, a political figure for two years, four years, six years, whatever the period of time that we deem appropriate by our processes of government, that they have access and entry to the system. Uh, that comes through the primary process. And for that, I think if we took the PAC money out of it, it would be a much more open arena. Also, I think the term limitations is a big factor in opening up the process and getting more sunlight down into the way Congress does business. Do you think it's reasonable to establish spending limits for the various federal elective offices? For general elections, I say no. But I don't believe in the checkoffs, and I don't believe in PACs. But I believe as soon as you try to... Now, are you talking about individual contribution caps, or are you talking overall caps? No, how much money a, uh, a candidate can spend on his election hmm. campaign. I, I don't worry so much about the overall amount of money that he can spend if we take PACs out of it, and we still retain a cap on individual contributions. Because there, in effect, what you have is... People, right now the cap is $1,000. Because the problem is, if a guy stays in office for a long period of time, he keeps building up a fund. He may not spend it all. Correct. So that uh, the incumbent then accumulates a tremendous war chest so that anyone challenging him, uh, his chances diminish. 
But most of that money came from PACs. Mm -hmm. If we look at the amount of money coming from individuals, you're going to find that very few politicians can run campaigns based upon individual contributions. That's a very important point, and it's one that I've uh, been harping on for some years. I feel that Christians in particular are derelict because they do not contribute to political campaigns. So it's no wonder they're ineffectual and uh, get nowhere within the political system with their demands because they do not contribute. Uh, most Christians spend their lifetime without ever having given to a campaign and they then wonder why Washington or the State House is the way it is. I recall about 20, 25 years ago in uh, Mississippi there was a congressman who was highly vulnerable, deeply entrenched, but very vulnerable if a man had the money to go after him. This one uh, Christian there decided to do so. And everybody told him they were so glad to see a Christian run for office and they would pray for him. But none of them contributed. And as a result, he ended up uh, losing, not by uh, too big a margin, but with a very heavy debt because he financed so much of his own campaign. Now, that's the problem. I think there are many Christians who could win office if the Christian community were supportive of them. And I think it's a moral obligation for Christians to put their money where their mouth is. Let's discuss the reason why Christians don't. I think one of the reasons is that Christians have developed such an intense cynicism about politics. Uh, they're cynical and wary of any politician, even self-described uh, 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 Christian politicians. Well, they have a very good, <clears throat> very good reason for that. They've been perpetually cheated. And there's also the fact there's a big gap here between campaigns and governance. And the politicians are not held accountable for the fact that they campaign on one set of principles and govern on another. Nobody gets impeached. Congressmen remain in office. Judges put out these squirrely decisions and sit there for life. The people of the United States have actually behaved as though they have lost all initiative. They don't hold their officials accountable. They don't even keep track of what they do. And this is this is a, a terrible indictment of a system. I mean, read my lips, no new taxes. When are we supposed to believe the man who broke that word? And how dare he stand up and run for election? You would think in a in a commonwealth of courageous and educated people, he would be impeached. Well, I think you're right on the money, Otto. I, I see it in my area, yes. in my district. The idea is people will 
San Francisco area is an area that thinks they're quite gourmet. Yes. And they'll send back steaks to the kitchen because they are not cooked right or they have too much salt. But they end up having elected officials that are quite a bit worse than too much salt or, or too uh, little cooking. Not quite half-baked. <laughs> <laughs> but they never send these people back to the kitchen. So uh, I, I think you're right on the, the money with that, Otto. I, I would hope that we would get this sense of accountability. But we, we never look to these people as being accountable. It's like we've given up on them. We actually behave as though once they're elected, they can't be removed. Mm -hmm. And this is not true. They can be removed. I mean, if a man is a public liar, he can be impeached. He can be taken out of office. Uh, one of the methods used, and turning now to an equally bad, worse, worse form of government, the Soviets uh, disciplined individuals, campaigned against them by creating social ostracism. It was one of the strong weapons that they used. They didn't have to send everybody to the concentration camp. They ostracized individuals. They disciplined them in the factory. And I remember being invited to a party at which Norman Mailer was going to be. And I said, why should I go? Well, the fellow said, Norman Mailer is going to be there. And I said, I wouldn't speak to Norman Mailer on the best day in the year. And I wouldn't shake hands with him. And I won't go to the party. And he said, you're very hard to get along with. But why do we keep accepting in ordinary circles abortionists why don't we ever apply social sanctions? Why do we put up with these politicians? Why do we allow a man to campaign knowing that what he says doesn't make any sense? Or what he says he doesn't mean? If I may comment about uh, removing these public officials, my years on an Indian reservation, and this was when things were much better the 40s, the beginning of the 50s. It was impossible to remove an incompetent or a corrupt person in the federal uh, Indian, civil service. Indian service. Yes. <clears throat> it was true in any branch of it because I came into contact with several. The process took years. Even a person who was mentally incompetent. Uh, if their wife chose to make a battle of it, they could reach retirement age before there could be a decision. So the method of dealing with incompetence was to promote them and keep the competence because then they would stay put. So if any uh, able man were hired, he would never get a promotion. But, uh, for example, I recall one doctor who was an alcoholic. He would uh, come into the hospital for a day or two and then be on a binge again. The nurses would go over to his house, get him, put him into bed, nurse him back to health so that he'd function a day or two. Now, on one occasion, 
Now, this is the only hospital for a hundred miles in any direction and very well equipped. A beautiful building, in fact. A rancher, fifty miles or so to the west, uh, brought his wife in in very great agony because uh, whether it was a lamp or what, I don't know, the gasoline explosion had burned her from head to foot and the skin was hanging off her uh, face and her chest uh, and she was in screaming pain. And the doctor forbade the nurses to let her in because he said, I'm only required to take care of Indians and you're not Indian. The nurses were going to try to give the woman a shot so she would not be in such intense pain for the hundred-mile drive to Elko. And the doctor said, If you do, I will file charges against you. And the man said, The only reason I'm not staying here to strangle you is because I want to rush my wife to the hospital to save her life. Now, he got a promotion. So the whole of the federal setup favors incompetence. So a real house cleaning is necessary. Let's, let's talk about practical remedies. Um, I think everybody has the feeling that once elected officials get to the national level, they're almost virtually untouchable because they're, they become disconnected from their constituents and, uh, economically because the money comes from the PAC. Um, one of the illuminating statements I heard recently, uh, I attended an NRA grassroots meeting, and he said that all politics is local. He said, if you don't want incompetent people at high office, make sure they don't get into the lower offices. And one of the things that Christians can do in their local communities is start auditing the decisions of local judges, municipal and superior court judges in their local counties, because these people, and, and also district attorneys, uh, because these people have political ambitions for higher office. And that's where the national figures come from. And if Christians would uh, pay attention to the kinds of decisions that local judges are making and local county bo boards of supervisors and call them to task for that, these people don't make it into the high, higher offices. And Rex, as you have pointed out in the past, if you have a good local government, you have a hedge against a fallen and corrupt state and federal government. That's true. But we have we have some fantastic national problems. Congress of the United States enacts laws to which it exempts itself. And uh, a very good writer in the Wall Street Journal today quoted Madison, I believe it was, in the Federalist, saying that one of our guarantees against tyranny is the fact that we have no body which is capable of exempting itself from the laws it enacts for the people. Because if a body were able to do that, it would, be, of course, be the essence of tyranny. 
Well, we do have a body that is doing that. We have Congress. And we have a subsidiary uh, or a subjugated judiciary that allowed Congress to do it and that has never ruled against Congress's violation of that principle that all people of the United States should be under the same set of laws. Now, that's a glaring, it's a glaring crime, political crime, ethical crime, moral crime, committed over a long period of years. The first time that Congress did that was in World War II. It's never so far been brought up by any group of, of political uh, partisans, by any candidates, by any office holders, by any part of the press. The Wall Street Journal has just recently gotten around in the case of one columnist to talk about the rights of the American people in term, that have been violated in terms of property rights, in terms of the distribution of law, etc., You've got to, somebody has to bring an action before the Supreme Court can rule on it. Could the Quitam action be used against Congress for exempting itself from the laws that it passes to force the U.S. Supreme Court to rule? The, the Quitam provisions of the False Claim Act presuppose a claim being made against the government. Now, this is a piece of legislation that I, I promise you there are a lot of lawyers who would like to see expanded in its application, and there are, I think, a lot of taxpayers that would like to see it expanded. Possibly so. I mean, you're hitting on the essence of what I see. I, as I related to you before, I say, when I went to my minister, I knew the extent of the problem, and when he said, this is a validation of your effort, then the next step for me to do was to figure out how to correct it. Now, you're talking about the Quitam action, uh, we're talking about term limits. We're talking about... Uh, the limits all, of Congress. Yes, all, all these different things. I, we've got some very powerful laws in the Quitam that protect us not so much from our... In the past, they've never been used to protect us from our government corruption. They've been used to protect us from contractor corruption. But I think it's only one quick hop, skip, and a jump to start moving them over, to start making administrative agencies and their personnel accountable. Mm -hmm. And boy, that is something we really need in government. Mm -hmm. And all our problems do not emanate from the Congress. The Congress merely passes legislation and determines what's good law, so to speak. But the next step is implementation, and that's where the administrative agencies come in, and no one holds them accountable. They actually respond only to one person, if at all, and that's the president. Well, I will say this, that Congress has violated, violated the delegation of powers principle, which John Locke talked about at the end of the English Civil War. Congress, in effect, has delegated to agencies more power than Congress itself possesses. It is, it is attempted to delegate to Congress all its own powers and plus additional powers. Now, Congress was not allowed by the Constitution to delegate any of its powers to anybody. It set up agencies that both enact laws in the form of regulations, that adjudicate laws in the form of their own private courts, 
and that monitor the laws according to their own inspectors. And this is ridiculous. This has created the fourth branch of government out of thin air. Well, in just a moment, we're going to ask everyone to turn the tape over and we'll continue. But let me just make this. The Constitution no longer exists to all practical intent because it has been made a dead letter by the Supreme Court. And in court cases I've been in, I've heard federal and uh, state judges say they will not allow any reference to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, or the First Amendment in the discussion. Uh, or in the case, they will only be guided by the most recent act uh, on the matter by the Supreme Court. So uh, we do have a serious problem in the fact that we are so far removed from uh, truly uh, constitutional law. Paul, well, it's easy in any group, in a barbershop, uh, a church meeting for people to vent their spleen about Congress. But do you tell us now what you think we need to know to be able to assess the scene more intelligently? Well, you, you need to have the openness and you have to have a tool to cause accountability to be brought to bear. Now, here in California, we have a thing called the referendum. If we have a law or a proposition that we think is appropriate and we can't get our legislators to get off the dime, people can cause action themselves without the benefit of the legislative branch. They put a proposal on the ballot. I think national referendums are, are nice also, but we have something that's available to us right now that we as individuals who place a bit of emphasis on efficiency, economy, and containment of waste and abuse could avail ourselves of. And that's a, a piece of legislation that it took me a while to locate, but once I located I said, this is a real treasure trove of opportunity for, for individuals to cause correction in our federal government. And that's the False Claims Act. Now, it was amended in 1986, and I took heart by one of the comments made by uh, Senator Grassley, uh, who made the comment, every individual should be the shotgun behind the door. And I thought, well, boy, isn't that picturesque speech? I wonder if it really works. And uh, this legislation originated back in the 1860s under Abraham Lincoln to save the Union cavalry from getting horses with split hoofs. Uh, a person who would point out that a horse trader was really trading low uh, could institute suit for the cavalry, for the federal government, for the Union troops. Well, when I started looking at this law, I had... I saw that it had pretty much been used as a vehicle for very modest recoveries by employees of federal contractors. But the wording was sufficiently open 
and by the congressional intent, such as Grassley's comment, uh, I felt that maybe new spins could be attached to this that would benefit the individual taxpayer. And what it's come down to, although there have been some significant efforts in the last two weeks to try and change this, is that any citizen who sees financial disadvantage to the federal government associated with procurement or the the presentation of a, a bill, you don't even have, an individual does not even have to receive money from the federal government. The idea is if they present a bill to the federal government for something that is unallowable, unacceptable, uh, for legal reason, I mean, not just the fact that you don't appreciate what they're buying with our dollars, but if you can show that there was uh, a disadvantage, a financial disadvantage to the federal government, you can avail yourselves of a particular provision of the False Claims Act called the Quitam Provisions. The Quitam Provision is a tremendous uh, vehicle for individuals to institute suit against the federal government's manipulators. You have to recognize that it's not free. It's not like the civil rights law where the government will do the work for you. In effect, if you see a violation, you can file on behalf of the federal government whatever the overcharging was, it's multiplied by three, and so if it's a hundred dollar overcharging, the government has the right to collect three hundred dollars plus the interest and penalties, and the person who identifies it gets one-third of potentially thirty percent, not one-third, potentially thirty percent of what the recoveries are to the federal government. It's meant to be a bit uh, harsh because people are not supposed to take advantage of the public trust but that piece of law works in a way that's magnificent if the Department of Justice were relied upon to initiate all actions to recover federal waste and abuse we'd get very little but that law allows an individual, if they're willing to pay approximately $6,000 in filing fees and they can find a law firm to do the remainder, either pro bono or contingency, to set in motion the wheels of recovery for the federal government. The bad side is that the federal government doesn't have to give you a penny. If you go through and win the case, and this has been demonstrated in the past in one case by a gentleman in Florida where he pointed out a, a substantial level of abuse by some Japanese contractors for construction work overseas amounting to approximately $300 million of bid rigging. Uh, it was found to be with justification and the Air Force went ahead and settled on the side and never gave the gentleman a penny. Uh, that, I think, one, demonstrates how little interest uh, the government has in containing waste and abuse. They were more interested in containing their embarrassment. They didn't want it to be let out that they had been one-upped by some Japanese contractors. That doesn't apply, though, when taxes are involved. They pay uh, informers who point out tax evaders. Yes. 
Now, that is something where you cannot go out and prosecute for the collection of the taxes. That's true. But under Quitam, if you do the filing, you pay the $6,000... Then you could collect on taxes. No, the government could collect on taxes. Well, it's, it's an area we could push for. And I would not be opposed to it. If I was a congressman, I'd push for that interpretation. The idea is, normally it presupposes a presentation of something for money. And in a taxing situation, it's just the opposite. That is, there's not a presentation uh, by an individual to the government, but there's a presentation by the government to the individual. But under a, a quitam situation, you don't have to rely upon the Department of Justice. In the instance you identify with the IRS, you, you would have to rely upon the IRS to go out and push the case you presented to. Under a quitam action, you do the filing on behalf of the federal government out of a matter of courtesy. And in the past, it was the only way you could ever get anything done because most lawyers would not follow up on quitams. It was too expensive. The Department of Justice pulls away the action from whatever administrative agency is involved. If the Air Force or the Army or the Navy is doing a negotiation on a contract and they've given away our money for naught, they will say, hey, you can't do a resolution of this dispute. DOJ is taking the lead now in the resolution of this dispute. If the DOJ, for political reasons, chooses not to involve themselves, what if it's a very prestigious uh, heart transplant type fellow uh, who's working on a federal grant and charged uh, his wife and himself when they were both on vacation in Bermuda. That's something that you as an individual can take up on a quitam. You go in there and you say, I'd like to exert this claim. We were billed unfairly and I want the money given back to the federal treasury three times over plus interest and penalties. Department of Justice said, hey, this, this fellow's an icon. We don't want to touch him because as, as soon as we go after him, someone's going to say, that's, that's not the type of person we're trying to catch. We want to catch the people that make toilet seats. Well, you then can go on your own initiative. The attorneys pay their own way. You can prosecute that case with, as though you were the federal government. That's the beauty of the Quitan. And that's the reason the defense industry dislikes it. That's the reason many people who have been abusing the taxpayer for a long time dislike it. It has although an appearance of accountability to it, it's not as strong a piece of legislation as I think should be put in place. The reason being that to do complex litigation against a major defense contractor, and that's where the predominant abuse occurs in our procurement systems, runs about $2 million a year. Stanford, at the last estimate, was spending about $800,000 a month in pretrial preparation. $9 million a year in pretrial prep. Now, that's because they're the defendant. But on the plaintiff side, easily it runs possibly, on an average, over a five-year case, roughly $2 million, $2.5 million a year to prosecute a case effectively. That means that a law firm that decides to substitute for the Department of Justice, and I would suggest we should always let the private sector do the prosecutions and let the Department of Justice sit on the sidelines and take notes. They need somewhere in the neighborhood of 4 to $10 million to go after a major defense contractor who's abused the trust. 
to pay for that, because not every case they're going to go into will they win, they have to build in a, a profit factor, plus they have to build in a risk factor. That means that on a level of four to ten million dollars of cost for the five years involved, you're going to have to see a potential recovery to the law firms in the neighborhood of somewhere between 25 and 75 million. On the way contingency work is done, that means that you're going to have to have a claim of overcharging somewhere in the neighborhood of at least, I'd say, $80 million. That's where the law is weak. And that's pre premised on the fact that there's a 30% reward or a bounty given to someone who successfully prosecutes a quitam action. If you don't win, you don't get anything. All right? But if you win, the max you can get is 30% under the 1986 revision. Barney Frank right now is trying to reduce it to 10%. Berman out of Panorama City in California wants to reduce it to 10% for government officials. And government officials know more about the corruption of this government than anyone else. Well, what they've done on that is they've now pushed the threshold up to where a law firm will not look at a claim for fraud or abuse that's less than a quarter of a billion. Because their likelihoods and of success, plus their contingent fee arrangements, cannot justify a case less than that, unless it's a real headline case where they're going to get image and, and goodwill. But if you're talking about strictly dollars and cents, we've left every case from $250 million down to zip without a means for getting it into resolution. We don't have, as I call, the implementation phase for the correction. So I, I think that we need to look at this much more carefully, how we handle fraud, waste, and abuse in government. We need, one, to get it down to the point where we not only look at $250 million instances of fraud, waste, and abuse, but we get it down to a million dollars. I think a million dollars is a reasonable amount of fraud, waste, and abuse. We also ought to take a look at the cost of litigation. It's expensive, Otto, no doubt about it. I know. Isn't it wonderful that we've managed to beat inflation? <laughs> <laughs> Only one other industry can do that well, and that's health care. So <laughs> Speaking of health care, would this type of litigation uh, be effective for Title X? If someone had an abortion clinic in their community that took Title X money, could a pro-life group or a pro-life individual use this type of procedure to ratify that uh, abuse? Okay, now, I, I'm not a lawyer. I mean, I, I would offer to you, though, that when Paul Biddle went out to look for a law to save taxpayers' money, I wasn't a lawyer then either. I just mm -hmm. really applied myself and kept reading and reading and reading until I found a statute I thought would work. The, the way I see the False Claim Act it could very well apply. You would have to show, uh, not so much in the nature of the activity of it being an abortion clinic, but in the nature of the occasion for reimbursement mm -hmm. being without cause, mm -hmm. you could go after them. Mm -hmm. And they've even been very bold and brassy about that, openly stating that they overcharge women and try to get them in under Title X so that they can charge higher rates for the abortions. Could possibly be an occasion. You'd want, 
Now, see, the reason we had, the taxpayer had such success with me at Stanford was that I had done major complex litigation, mm -hmm. and a lot of the legal concepts as an accountant I'd worked with. Mm -hmm. What you have to be careful is when you get out into an area of burgeoning interpretation, what we're talking about now mm -hmm. is using quitam provisions in a way they've never been used before. Mm -hmm. But that's no reason why we can't be aggressive in trying to make it work for us, right? Mm -hmm. The government's there to benefit the people. And if we have a way of making this happen, so be it. But you want to be very careful about the development of costs, the development of damages, secondly, on how you're going to lodge it against the False Claims Act. But I think it could be done. Mm -hmm. If you were asking me, would Paul Biddle venture out and try something like that? Yeah. Yes, he would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I would encourage other people who have professional skills. Now, recognize we have to have a lot of Christians who believe in pro-life, mm -hmm. who are accountants, CPAs, mm -hmm. statisticians, and lawyers. Mm -hmm. Now, if we start turning our skills to God's missions as well as our own on a personal basis, we're a tremendous and potent force. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's that's what we see at Stanford, I, I think, more than anything else. I, it was not Paul Biddle necessarily doing these things, but I had to have a lot of influence from areas that I can't even comprehend. Mm -hmm. And... I think that could be put to use in the, in the situation of abortion clinics. But I think in healthcare, boy, if you want to talk about an industry that's out of control, that's in chaos and is just running up bills against us right and left, if I had stayed at Stanford, the next place I was going to go was the university hospital. And before I decided to resign and run for Congress, I went to the chief financial officer for the Stanford University Hospital. And I gave him notice, and I said, I'm coming in here to start reviewing Stanford University Hospital. <laughs> and he said, the attorneys have told me I'm not supposed to speak to you, and I cannot encourage you to, that you will have any access to information in the hospital. <laughs> but if, if I had had two years, and it takes about that long to develop the information to successfully go after mm -hmm. someone for these types of violations... I think I could have had a tremendous impact on health care costs in this country. Mm -hmm. I may still. I mean, as a congressman, I think that's one of the things I would like to try and contain, our, our health care costs. But uh, we normally don't put the appropriate focus and intensity on public problems that we put on personal problems. Mm -hmm. You know, we can always figure out how we can pick up our kid after school or how we want him to go to a Christian school, but we don't sit down and try to perpetuate Christian schools in general. Mm -hmm. It becomes very focused in ourselves. But I, I think if we start looking at a lot of problems in the, in the country, and we start putting our personal skills to work for public purposes that are, that are within our framework of what we believe, we'll have accomplishment like you cannot measure. Mm -hmm. I think that's wonderful because <clears throat> we have more highly skilled people in this country than the world has ever produced before. And as you pointed out, they're mainly concerned with their personal positions and not with larger issues. Mm -hmm. Of course, they have to become concerned about those larger issues. And if they don't become concerned about those larger issues today, they will be destroyed by those larger issues within 10 to 20 years. Very definitely. Very definitely. Well, I hope all of people who listen to this tape will support an enlargement of the False Claim Act and the Quitam provisions. Yes. Anything that allows us to get accountability and then correction in the government. What are the uh, efforts being made after you were effective at Stanford? You and I were talking about this earlier. 
is it possible for now for people to go into universities like Stanford and do the same types of things that you did there? You mean go into other universities? What's happened in that situation? In public universities, yes, mm -hmm. because you can get access to information. Mm -hmm. In private universities, you won't get access. The, hard, the ones who are most motivated to take public monies are private universities mm -hmm. because they're not state-supported. Mm -hmm. So... It's sad, but the only ones that can get the correction there are the Department of Health and Human Services and the Office of Naval Research. Mm -hmm. They Otherwise, it's very hard for us to uncover waste and abuse unless we have a defector from the university. Mm -hmm. And Because you look at, there are 26 Navy universities around the country. I say Navy universities, ones that are oversighted by mm -hmm. the Navy. And I identified 42 universities, which included DHHS schools of abuse, Dingle and the GAO, and Dingle being the chairman of the House Subcommittee on Oversight of Energy. He was able to validate that we did have overcharges from these universities. Mm -hmm. Presidents taking their wives uh, to the Grand Cayman Islands, uh, chartering jets, uh, using limo service, and charging it to research. That has nothing to do with research. But we also had violent abuse of things that are appropriate and necessary to research. That is, many schools would load everything they could onto the federal taxpayers' back. Didn't Kennedy of Stanford uh, include his wedding and uh, other things? He had a seven research. That's right. He had a major expenditure for his uh, wedding reception to introduce his second wife to the university administration. And he considered that was part of the role associated with research. And we paid a portion of it. We only paid 30% of it. I didn't think we had to pay a penny of it. Uh, there are too many costs that universities have viewed us as an easy mark for. Uh, they just passed them through, and no one was vigilant on the government side to stop it. That, that's what I'm saying it's sad in the private universities. When Paul Biddle left Stanford University on March 4th... Did they celebrate? They <laughs> celebrated. They brought two, two cases of champagne. They knew it over the paper. They brought two cases of champagne and celebrated my departure. And charged it to the government. <laughs> disciplined by the Navy, was reinstated with back pay and interest and put into a position near his home, which was convenient for his commute. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't have enough Paul Biddles, and I'm not saying that in a vain sense, but we don't have enough people who are willing to shake the tree when they see things are wrong. Uh, we don't have people who go into government and come back out. I, I went in with no intention of being a lifer. I went in there for five years and stayed six and a half because we were in the middle of this investigation when my period of departure came up that I was going to leave. But we've got to start rotating these people through the ten, administrative agency. And tenure in government mm -hmm. service, with the exception of the military. And we have to end tenure in academia. Yes. And we have to end tenure in the judiciary. Mm -hmm. Well, Mrs. Thatcher ended tenure in Britain, and they never forgave her for it. <laughs> Oh, you can hear the stream across the Atlantic. Yes. Uh, I had a slight part in that, in that.
uh, Sir Brian Griffith, the policy chief for Mrs. Thatcher, uh, studied the messianic character of American education in some detail, knew the book better than I who wrote it. I thought he memorized it. He brought up <laughs> passage after passage. Yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't imagine why he kept talking about this particular book, excepting that before we left, I believe, or shortly after we left England, the Reform and Education Act went through Parliament. Yes. And it, it, they used the language, of course, very precisely. They said, no member of the faculty or administrative staff will be secure from uh, dismissal for reasons of redundancy or incompetency. We went to the uh, to 10 Downing Street on invitation and were startled to find uh, his interest in uh, education in my book. Uh, he was quoting passages I had forgotten I'd written. <laughs> and then subsequently the Reform Act was announced and uh, we began to understand his interest. Well, our time is nearly up, Paul. This has been a most enlightening evening. Is there something you'd like to say in a couple of minutes by way of summation? Well, I think very rarely do we have such public angst about the situation of our government that people are driven to action. This seems to be a year when that is the case. And one of the things I would hope that our electorate does is start looking to which laws are more supreme than others. And I, I very rarely hear anyone lodge a complaint against a piece of legislation or a program uh, or an enactment or enforcement of law on the basis that it's contrary to things that we as Christians would put first. And we have to start being more demonstrative we have to be more willing to be out on point and speaking our minds and what we want rather than letting other people tell us how the state will view this and this is how it's going to be. Uh, we're very docile as Christians about how our government governs and how they choose to relate to us and, and our ideas of what is correct. The, the thing that we speak of... Uh, at St. Paul's, where I attend, we talk about a church militant. Yes. And that means something. That means you get up off of your duff and you make a difference. Now, I, I would hope that as people feel oppressed, and I mean, we're really in a financial bind right now as a country. If we don't get off the mark, I don't know what it will take to get Christians off the mark. Mm -hmm. So my, my point is that I hope that a lot of people around the country, as Reader's Digest said in their January article about me, we need a lot of the common man, the average man and woman, to take a position and implement actions accordingly. And I, that would be my, my final comment. Everything that's pointed to me is that an individual can make a difference, they can make a change, but you have to set foot on the ground and walk through the door to do it. Perhaps it's appropriate, since you're with us, Susan, that we give a woman the last word. 
The reason we have the government that we have is because Christians don't give a hoot. They will not vote. They will not support candidates who are good Christian candidates. And thank God we have, uh, we do have some good candidates across the nation. And if the candidate, if the Christians would just get out and vote and support those people, we would see a change in our government. But we have to see it. We have to look for the long haul. We have to be willing to be in the trenches. We have to be willing to support the candidates, not only for one election term, but for as many terms as God allows. And that's the only way we can change our government. Well, thank you, Paul. It's been a delight to have you here. And God bless you, and we'll be in prayer for you. And thank you all for listening. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.